Well, praise God for our, our King of glory who reveals himself in all kinds of ways and gives us the opportunity to worship him here together. Friends, would you uh, pull out your copy of scripture as we continue to worship the Lord uh, now through uh, the preaching of his word. And would you turn to Genesis chapter 13? We're going to be in two chapters today, 13 and 14, as we continue in this series called Messy Faith. I wonder how many of you grew up reading Dick Tracy comic books? Anybody? Nobody. That's perfect. Okay, forget the whole sermon. I'll start over. Uh, Who's heard of Dick Tracy? Anybody? Okay, thank you. Praise the Lord for that. If you're, if you're over 40, perhaps you have. If you're under 40, maybe you haven't. When I was 11 years old, there was a movie that came out about Dick Tracy, and I was enamored by it. This was this guy who was a crime fighter. He was really smart. He was really skilled, and he had all this cool gadgetry, right? And so what 11-year-old boy doesn't like that? In fact, Dick Tracy had a wristwatch radio that could communicate in two ways. It was innovative. It was, it was technologically astounding, and so I thought that was really cool. I, I was enamored by it. And that's why a few decades later, when Apple announced its gimmicky, or so it felt, Apple Watch, I was enthralled. I thought, this is a cool thing. Uh, This is a a technological device, much like Dick Tracy's two-way wrist radio. You can call on it. Uh, You can can text on it. You can read the news on it. It'll track your exercise and your sleep. It'll even drive your car if you want it to. (laughs) Maybe not that, but I, I, you know, uh, it's really cool. And so I thought, you know what, I got to have one of those. And eventually I found it on sale and I bought one and I found it to be helpful. I I like it in a variety of ways. I'm a little disappointed it doesn't drive my car, but beyond that, it was pretty good. It works pretty good most of the time. But there was one occasion when one of the functions that I was using was no longer available. And I thought, what's going on here? It stopped working. And in fact, uh, it became somewhat interoperable. And I thought, well, sure enough, it turns out if you buy a technological device in order to stay on the technology train, you got to pony up every couple of years, right? And so I thought, bummer, that's, that's just the way it's going to be. But after looking at new replacement, after looking to replace the watch, and, and, and then after thinking through, you know, this isn't working and it's frustrating me, I, I got more and more frustrated until I complained to, to the, the one person that can do something about it. <laughs> I complained to Google, <laughs> Right, And Google found me this really interesting article. It was a technical article, really advanced, but that talked about the issue that I was having with my watch. And it showed some promise. And so I dived in and I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. And, and there were a bunch of prompts there in the article. And I thought, I can read, I can follow these prompts. And so I dived in. And the first prompt was this, find the power button. Okay, good. I found the power button. And then it said, hold the power button down for 10 seconds. Okay, I can do that. I, I held the power button down for 10 seconds. You know what happened? It shut off, right? It shut off. That was really interesting. Yeah. And then it said, find the power button again. I said, oh yeah, I remember that part. So I could do that. And then it said, press the power button again. And and so I pressed it. And you know what happened? It turned back on. No, it did. It turned back on. And then it said, check your function and see if it's fixed. (laughs) And I did. And I went, wow, that's really great. All I needed, friends, was a reboot. It actually wasn't that technical. I just needed to reboot my watch, and guess what? It, it worked, and, and it's been that way ever since. Every, every six months or so, some of the function goes out, and I just hit that power switch. I shut it off, and then I turn it on, and all of a sudden, it's rebooted, and it's just like new, save for the scratch or two that I put into it since I've owned it. All it needed was a reboot. It wasn't useless after all. Now, if we're not careful, I think we can end up thinking about ourselves or, or maybe the people that we love about how I thought about my watch. I thought it was done for. 
We, we, we notice the lack of functionality. We notice it not living up to its potential. And we think, well, I guess that's over. I guess that story's written. Maybe it's time just to chuck the watch and start over. But last week, we discovered this man named Abram who, who began with good intentions. He began strong, but he quickly blew it in some catastrophic ways. He, he disregarded God's provision of land in favor of going off to Egypt when there was a famine. He, he compromised his seed by giving over his wife into a harem of another man. And rather than being an agent of blessing, he brought curse to the people that he was with. He was way off the rails. And, and we're led to think, how could God possibly use this guy? It was ugly. I mean, maybe God got it wrong. Maybe, maybe this guy just needed to be done away with and God would start over with someone else. But surprisingly, praise God, he doesn't send Abram packing. At least not in the way we might think of it. See, instead, God blessed him. Not, not because his actions were pure. Not as, a, not as a sanction of that which he did. But because in even his most deplorable state, Abram knew to look up and to look to a God who could solve his problems, even the big mess that he'd made. He still had faith. And see, Abram went down to Egypt, but he didn't stay there. God rebooted him instead. I wonder this morning, is anybody hanging out in Egypt? Anybody ever been there? Of course, I don't mean literally. I mean I mean, in the way that Abram went down away from God's direction. You know, when you're, when you're in Egypt, it's tough to see a way out. Some of you are struggling this morning in your marriage, perhaps. And you've been trying everything, and you're so angry, and you're so frustrated, and you're so embarrassed about your behavior and, and that of your spouse, and, and you start to lose hope. You're stuck in Egypt, and you need a reboot. Uh, others of you have experienced a cascade of disappointments in your spiritual life, in your physical life, in, in your home life, and all these things, and you're tired and you're angry at God because it seems like when you pray, it continually falls on deaf ears. And you're stuck in Egypt and, and you need a reboot. For others, it's more of a slow drift. <laughs> and as you pause and you think about it, you can't remember the last time you cracked your Bible. Or the last time you had a meaningful conversation with God in prayer. And as you've become increasingly edgy with the people around you, your eyes have started to wander. Whether to, whether to porn or, or to another person's spouse or to your neighbor's new boat or vacation home or Instagram feed, whatever it is. And though you haven't sold your spouse into another person's harem, you're, you're stuck in Egypt. And you need a reboot. Friends, I want to argue today that if that's you, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope. And we're going to find in the example in the life of Abram a model for what reboot looks like. We're going to find some hope in Abram. You don't have to stay in Egypt forever. Praise God for that. Amen? So let's see. Let's look to the text. That's where we look, isn't it? We look to God through his word for the answers to life's challenges. That's where we're going to look today as we look always. Look with me at Genesis chapter 13, starting just in verses 1 through 4. Let me encourage you to follow along. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, 
between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Friends, it's clear here from the text that Abram is making a recommitment to his faith in God. He's making a recommitment to walking with God. He's in the reboot process. And we're going to see this lived out, modeled out as we work through the text here. Verse 1 says that Abram went up from Egypt. Okay, And you might remember from last week in chapter 12, verse 10, it says that Abram, when there was famine in the land, when the going got tough, Abram went away from God's blessing. He went down to Egypt. Now the text says he went back up to the land that God had provided. And as he arrives back where he had originally built an altar to God, he begins once again to call on the name of the Lord. Friends, what an important thing. I love how Pastor Nate led us into worship this morning. Lord, tune my heart to sing your praise. Sometimes we need a recalibration in our worship of God. Abram gets to the land and he remembers and recognizes where he had been down in Egypt. Things didn't go well there. And when he returns, the first thing he does is he says, God, I need you. I'm calling upon you. And he reestablishes his own presence, but also the presence of God in that land. Friends, his settling in the land demonstrates his recommitment to God. And then notice this. Notice this. Chapter 12, verse 10 describes the famine that he was fleeing as severe. It was a severe famine. And the Hebrew word for that is kaved. Say kaved. Good. You speak Hebrew. Great, great deal. All right. Kaved means heavy. It means oppressive. It means intense. You know where that word shows up again? It shows up in 13.2. Look at this. This time translated rich. It says, now Abram was very rich. Kaved in livestock and silver and in gold. Friends, literally, he was busting at the seams with God's provision. Isn't that incredible? After this mess down in Egypt, God blesses him for his faith, not his action. And as we observe Abram's present blessing, we observe it in light of his past failure. That doesn't go away from us. The text brings us back to that, where the heaviness of the famine caused Abram to drift away from God. Now we see the heaviness of God's grace drawing him back to his provision, to his promise. And so Abram recommits to God in response to God's grace by settling in the land, and he worships the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord there. But not only that, See, remember what God said to Abraham in, in Genesis 12:1. He said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Remember what Abram did? Well, his wife was, was barren, so rather than leaving his kindred as God had commanded, he hedged his bet and he brought his nephew, Lot, just in case God needed to use Lot in order to advance the seed. But now, ironically, As Abram experiences God's blessing with with flocks and herds and tents, and even as God blesses his nephew Lot, Abram realizes, look, it's time to recommit to God's instructions. God said, leave your country, check, he did that. And then God said, leave your kindred, bummer, no check, didn't do that yet. Hence, verses 5 through 7, look at this. It says, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. 
For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Isn't this interesting? Even after his recommitment, after he goes back up to the land, the roadblocks to his faith still exist. Friends, sometimes we ask God to remove the roadblocks. Sometimes God supplies us with a face to trust him in the midst of them. Abram still doesn't have a child. Sarai is still barren. And the seed that he does have that's connected to him is causing all kinds of problems for him. Lot's peeps and Abram's peeps aren't getting along. There's so much blessing. There's no room for all their cattle and all their resources that they need. And so they're fighting over it. They're fighting over the blessing. And on top of that, the Canaanites, and now accompanied by the Perizzites, are still around. And so Abram realizes something's got to change here. We've got to do something differently. And then he went, oh. Yeah, that's right. God said, leave your country. Thought I was good there. God said, leave your kindred. (sighs) I blew it. I blew it. And so this is what happens, verse 8. It says, then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Church, do you notice this? Abram's in a different place than he was in chapter 12. Praise God for that. And rather than viewing Lot as his backup plan, Abram now realizes that though the blessings are bounteous, separating from Lot is the necessary response to God's command to leave his kindred. He needs to separate from Lot. It's what God said to do. And friends, sometimes we interpret our relationship with God according to the blessings we experience. One might have said that that Abram and Lot were right in God's will. They had so many cattle. They had so many tents. They had so many herdsmen. God was blessing them. Clearly, how could they be disobeying God? And and we do that. We assume that if we have a nice house, if we have a good job and a strong marriage and smart kids and and whatever, that we're clearly within God's will. But and, And we think, why else would we have all this stuff? Why else would these things be clicking for us? But all the while, it's possible that we're disobeying God's command and he's just delaying what needs to be done. Friends, it's a dangerous place to be. And Abram realizes, I was there. (laughs) I was there in chapter 12, thought Abram. No. (laughs) But he realizes, I've been there. I don't want to go back there. I'm going to do what God commanded. I don't understand it. I don't know why necessarily, but I'm going to do what God asked because that's what God told me to do. But then I I love how he does it. Look, Look at this. This is beautiful. See, he doesn't say, Lot, God gave me the blessing. Okay, I'm kind of a big deal, right? You're not. It's not what he says. He doesn't say, Lot, you know, you're going to have to just get out of here and and you're going to have to deal with whatever you have to deal with on your own because God has given me the land. He's given me the seed. He's given me the blessing. You go take care of yourself. No, it's not what he does. He acts magnanimously. He acts generously towards Lot while he trusts God's promise. He says to Lot, look, you choose. You take whatever you want. Look around. This isn't going to work for both of us. Your guys are fighting with my guys. Can't do this anymore. And so why don't you just take a walk, take a survey, see what you think, and you tell me what you want, and I'll take the rest. Isn't that amazing? And see, though though Abram is now unwilling to disobey God, he he remains totally willing to share the blessing. Remember what God said to Abram? He said, I'm going to bless you, 
and others will be blessed through you. (laughs) Abram's getting it. He's starting to understand, yeah, this blessing, it's for me, but it's not just for me. It's also through me to others. And though I'm to separate from Lot, it doesn't mean that Lot can't be blessed. Sadly, Lot doesn't share the same perspective. See, Lot knew of God's command. Lot knew of God's promise. And he understood the catastrophe of Abram's poor choices in Egypt. And yet he was dull of heart and and, and he was full of rebellion. The text makes that clear. Rather, Rather than recommit to God, he does this, verse 10 and 11. It says, And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Abram gave Lot the choice. And Lot looks around, and something catches his eye. He starts looking in one direction. And he finds something that's very familiar and very appealing. And see, the Jordan River was full of fruit-bearing trees and green vegetation. There was life there. And it reminded Lot of his home territory in Ur. Ur was located in in the place of modern-day Iraq, where it's likely that the Garden of Eden would have been. And I think that the Garden of God here is a reference to that. There was an understanding in these early times that this was the place where the Lord sourced life. There were four rivers flowing out of Mesopotamia. And Lot goes, I like that place. I like where we were. I want to go back there. Well, at least there's the Jordan River Valley. I can do it there. And as Lot's mind wanders there, he also remembers what he just saw in Egypt. Lot would have accompanied Abram to Egypt, and he would have seen the Nile River and and the fortunes that it provided for the people of Egypt. It provided a source of fertility, a source of water and sustenance. And so the Egyptians flourished because of the Nile. Lot sees the Jordan River, and he goes, oh, bingo. I want that. I want to flourish too. And because this was, as the text says, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, before the land became infertile with great amounts of salt, and we'll discuss that in a a subsequent message, Abram looked out, a lot actually looked out, and he saw choice property. He saw choice property. And rather than figuring out how to stay in the land of promise, Lot chose to be on the fringe and actually outside of it on the other side of the Jordan because he was stuck on what he knew. He'd seen the likes of this before and he trusted what he knew over what God had promised. In fact, I think Lot was stuck on past paradigms. He was stuck on his past And friends, some of us, we we come to a fork in the road, much like Lot, and we're confronted with all kinds of options. And, and, And though we know God's promised blessing is before us, we're so hampered by our past paradigms that we're unwilling to trust God for our present and our future. We know that our attitude towards our spouse is ungodly. But we excuse it because this is the way our mom and dad used to do it. We're stuck on our past. We know God provides a better solution to our depression, but alcohol has been our escape. And so we we continue to revel in it. We continue to use it or or other sorts of substances rather than to do the hard work of trusting God and taking healthy steps. We're stuck in our past. We revert to what we know. We know that to get past the influence of our enemies, God requires us to forgive them. And and that he actually enables us to do that. But it's just easier to settle for harboring bitterness and anger. And so we stay there. We say, God, forget it. I'm not doing it. 
We're caught in past paradigms. Church, Lot Lot couldn't get it over his past. He was stuck on those paradigms and it was going to cost him. It was going to cost him. Keep reading. Verse 11. It says, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. East, by the way, is never a good direction in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve were kicked out to the east. I know Green Bay is to the east. That's another conversation for another time. (laughs) Why do I keep doing that? I don't know. That wasn't in the script. (laughs) Hmm. So Lot, ah, muse, muse, muse. All right. Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. (laughs) See, Lot wasn't just stuck on past paradigms, friends. Lot was plain selfish. He he was plain selfish. He chose for himself what he deemed best. No other consideration. No consideration for Abram. No consideration for his people. No consideration for the people around him. He looked, he saw what he wanted, and he took it. And he walked away from his uncle without a thought. Friends, often God gives us an opportunity to make the selfish choice, doesn't he? Doesn't mean it's a good choice. Doesn't mean it's a good one. See, Lot begins to spiral at this point. Look at verse 12. It says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Land of promise? Check. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Church Lot moves his family and his his herdsmen and his tents and his cattle to a wicked place, the text says. We're going to see that play out as we continue our study in Genesis. Lot becomes settled in wickedness rather than settled in God's promise. He rejects God's long-term blessing in favor of short-term gain. Thus, he makes himself and his family susceptible to unimaginable strife. He settles in wickedness, making himself and his family susceptible to strife, friends. And see, settling in wickedness has consequences. It does. Be warned. When you do that, you make yourself vulnerable to the enemy. And maybe not immediately. (laughs) The story of Pinocchio tells us that, doesn't it? Pinocchio becomes animated and, and he finds this guy and he ends up in this island and it's all fun and games for a while. But the more he gets used to it, the more he bears the consequences. Friends, settling in wickedness is a dangerous thing. We're going to see this with Lot and his family. And through that, we're going to be warned not to make the same mistake. Praise God, Lot's downward spiral was not Abram's. Abram is going up from Egypt. Lot's going down to the valley of the Jordan. But Abram walks a different path. See, not only is Abram recommitting to God's promise and faith, he's also willing to put his faith in action. And the Lord graciously leads him in this process. See, before that, after Abram demonstrates his recommitment by going back up to the land, his willingness to allow God to push the power button and reboot him, God graciously reminds him of what's his. This is a beautiful scene here. Look at verse 14. It says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. 
Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. (laughs) Friends, some of you who are stuck in Egypt, you need to be reminded of what's yours in Christ. You're adopted as those with full rights as firstborn sons. You're adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. You have a great inheritance. You have a great hope. You have a great provision that is yours in Christ. How do I know that? Because Christ got up out of the grave. Because Christ revealed himself. Because Christ promised it. He sealed our fate. He sealed our hope with his own glory, with his own righteousness. Some of you who are stuck in Egypt, we need to be reminded of what's ours. And friends, that's why we worship That's the the fundamental argument for why showing up to church, showing up to your growth group, opening your Bible, those things are important. They're not important from a legalistic standpoint. God doesn't sit up there and say, oh, good, Andy gets another check. Way to go. No, he says, I want you to know what's yours. I I want you to be aware of that which I've provided for you because I know Egypt stinks. I want you to remember that I gave my son for you because I love you. Sometimes we need to be revisioned with that. And even in those times where it's boring or pedantic, or you feel like it's the same old and I've done this before, you showing up and you singing the songs and you hearing the scriptures and you having the conversations with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's those things that when you're in Egypt, you're going to remember. It's a resource of grace that God longs to give you. And so God graciously brings Abram through a revisioning process by reminding him of the promise. Do you think Abram remembered the promise? I think so. When God talks to you, you kind of remember that stuff, right? But God says, hey, let me show you this in very tactile form. I want to revision you for this. And so he brings him up onto a high peak, perhaps the highest in all of central Israel. And he says, look in every direction. Look to the north. There's Mount Hermon, the snow-capped mountains. It's beautiful. I saw it a few months ago with a group of us. It's awesome. Look to the west, the Mediterranean Sea. You could perhaps see it from there. Look to the east, the Jordan River Valley, all that fertility. These are the edges of the boundary. Look to the south and the Dead Sea and the desert. This is the land that I'm giving you. This is the land of promise that will be not only for you, but for your descendants after you. And I want you to take a walk. Walk around the land. Do what kings do. And claim what you see. I'm giving it to you. And so he does. And when he returns to the oaks of Mamre, (laughs) he once again builds an altar. And he says, oh God, thank you. I give you the glory. Verse, Verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and he came and he settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Friends, as much as a reboot could ever be complete, It's right here. Now, Abram's going to be messy again. I've had to reboot my watch several times, all right? But for this moment, I'm convinced. Reboot complete, praise God. And I want to draw our attention now to chapter 14. We don't have time to read all of it. But here's what we need to know in the first 10 verses or so. There was some time that elapsed between the altar at Mamre and the time that we pick it up here. We're not sure how much. The text doesn't say. But eventually, 
there are four kings that come from that land that Lot referenced. That, that land near modern-day Iraq, they came from the east. And they make their way across the Fertile Crescent to the north of the desert. And they loop around and they start descending on Israel, on Canaan at this time. And they recognize there's an important trade route. Uh, in fact, a couple of them that go from Africa up into Europe and into Asia that, that they wanted to control. And so they start conquering these cities and these lands. And they make their way down through Canaan, and they eventually end up in a place where Sodom and Gomorrah and three other cities reside. And this is where Lot is dwelling. And we pick it up in verse 10. Okay? So this is chapter 14, verse 10. It says this. It says, Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Here, here the, these four kings from the modern-day Iraq, they make their way across, and they pick fights with everybody they come into contact with, including the five kings in this southern part of, of Canaan near the Dead Sea. And so these kings, along with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, start to, to panic and they start to run and they get caught in these bitumen pits, these tar pits near the Dead Sea. I was standing in the mud of the Dead Sea. I get it. I get what they mean, okay? It's thick and it grabs you and it's really hard. I could not find my clothes, uh, my, my stuff, and I was walking around in this muddy tar, slipping all over the place, and it was not a pretty moment in Israel for Andy Cavernon, all right? These armies were stuck and they were hampered, and they were defeated. Verse 11, it says, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. And here's what's significant for us. It says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. Lot settled in wickedness. And he was susceptible to strife. You think there's strife there for Lot and his family? Hmm. Friends, this won't be Lot's last experience of strife. He, he and all his family and the riches that he selfishly tried to protect, they were vulnerable along this, this trade route where he settled and they got nailed. They got, they got hammered. And they're captured and they're carried off into captivity. Lot wanted to protect himself, wanted to protect his riches. And yet, because he settled in wickedness, he lost it all. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. See, there's grace even for Lot. His generous uncle, Abram, was a force to be reckoned with. Look at this, verse 13. It says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces, forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, way up in Syria, uh, several, several hundred, maybe 200 miles away, perhaps, something like that, 150, long ways away from where they started. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Church, if you had any doubt about Abram's renewed character, you can leave it right here with Abram's rescue of Lot. 
Abram, though slighted by his selfish nephew, he doesn't blink when his nephew needs his help. And in the fashion befitting of a good king, in the presence of all of these other failed kings, remember there were five kings of these cities down by the Dead Sea. There were four kings that swept across. In the presence of all these other kings, Abram, who's not a king, does the most kingly thing. And he rises to the challenge and he mobilizes 318 men. And as he leads them forth, literally, if you'd read it in Hebrew, literally unsheathing them as a sword, he chases the armies all the way up to the northern part of Israel to Dan. And under the cover of night, he attacks them and he defeats the kings and chases them up to Syria, north of Damascus. And, and, he, and he captures them and he brings them home, all their possessions, all the people, and he rescues Lot and his kinsmen. <laughs> they should make a movie about that. <laughs> Now, when Abram returns, something really fascinating happens. Look at this with me. Verse 14 through 17. It says, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken. Nope. Yep, that's the right chapter. Good. Wrong verse. Right chapter. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Cheddar Leomer. By the way, he's a Wisconsin king, Cheddar, right? <laughs> Dad joke. It's Father's Day. All right. <laughs> After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavuot, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. <laughs> now, who are these kings? It's not hard to discern who the king of Sodom is, all right? The king of Sodom is a significant player in this narrative. We'll talk more about him in a minute. But who's this guy bringing out the bread and the wine? Who's, who's this guy that stopped by KFC on the way and brought supper? Who's Melchizedek? Where does he come from? Well, the text gives us a couple of indications. It says that he's the king of Salem. And in fact, in Psalm 76, verse 2, it equates Salem with Zion. And you know what that means? It means that Salem is the place where Jerusalem would eventually become the capital city of the nation of Israel, where God would rest in his temple with his people. And if that weren't fascinating enough, verse 18 says that Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. He, here, a Canaanite, somebody who's not a part of Abram's lineage, this Canaanite, uh, someone far from God, presumably, and yet not, is not only acting as king of Jerusalem, but he's also acting as the priest of God. And what does he do? <laughs> well, first he brings out the bread and wine. And he offers Abram a meal. And, and then this, verse 19. It says, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Church Melchizedek represents God as he blesses Abram. And there's a, there's a lot of mystery surrounding this guy, Melchizedek. We don't know where he comes from. We don't see any qualifications except that his main name means king of righteousness. And so all we know is that he shows up on the scene as an agent of God's blessing. And here's the thing. I think the mystery is intentional. See, it's God who supplies the blessing. And God can call up whomever and whatever he likes to be the agent of what he deems good. God can bless through anybody. And of course, the Bible does eventually give us more of the story of Melchizedek. We could spend a long time on that. We don't have time. But Melchizedek shows up in Psalm 110 in reference to the coming Messiah. 
And then he shows up in the book of Hebrews as one in whose lineage Christ came. And so here, in Abram's reception of God's blessing through Melchizedek, we're reminded that God's blessing comes from righteousness that he alone supplies. See, there is one who is in the order of Melchizedek as the righteous one sent by God with a blessing from God. And he offers us the blessing so that we might receive it like Abram, not by our own righteousness. Abram did not earn the blessing. He failed the test miserably. But God sends to him this man, this Melchizedek, to offer a blessing, not out of Abram's righteousness, but out of the righteousness of Melchizedek, and ultimately from God. Friends, the priest who comes in the order of Melchizedek is none other than Jesus. We could stop right there, and you could be thinking about that for weeks, right? At least I hope so. But what then is Abram's response? How does Abram respond? God, thank you very much, but I'd prefer to manufacture my own righteousness. I feel a little bit unworthy here. You know that thing in Egypt? Ooh, I was in a bad place. I messed up. I hate what I did to my wife. I hate that I walked away from your provision. Can you just let me figure this out? Can you just let me earn, earn my status back with you? I'm just too ashamed to let anything else be the case. Friends, that's not what he does. He recognizes the, the source of his blessing. Look at verse 20. It says, And blessed be God, this is Melchizedek continuing, Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Why did he do that? Friends, he recognized the source of God's blessing. This priest, this Melchizedek, is an agent of God. Thus, the blessing is from God, and Abram gets it, and he responds to it. He doesn't earn it. He simply responds to it. And so, as he looks around at the spoils of war, of battle, he sees this was God's doing. This was God's help. It was God who empowered me to chase after these armies and defeat the four kings. It was God who supplied the provisions and the plunder. Thus, as a sign of his recommitment to God, as a sign of his faith in God, he tithes his resources. He says to God, look, all this stuff is just stuff. It's not my stuff. It's your stuff. You've given it to me. I want you to use this to do whatever you want to do to bless others. Abram's understanding it. God has blessed him in order to be a blessing to others. And so he gives to Melchizedek, this agent of God, that which will help towards the blessing of others. And friends, one of the amazing things about tithing, about, about acting generously towards, uh, with the resources that God supplies is that it constantly reminds us of the source of our blessing. Christy and I in our marriage, we, we've used 10% as a benchmark for our giving. And it's not because Scripture binds us legally to that mark. But it's because tithing is demonstrated in Scripture as one of the incredible ways to release our grip on the resources we think we own. <laughs> Any of you ever thought about giving and thought, you know, if I kept all that stuff, I could buy some pretty cool stuff? Just a Come on, some of you are you're lying. <laughs> we think about that sometimes. If I kept what I was giving, man, we could have this, we could have that, this would be easier. 
But every time I think about that, I'm reminded that the resources that God has given me, they're not mine. They're His. Those are His resources. They're God's. And when 10% of our income is automatically deducted from our bank account every month, and it's been that way ever since I can remember, to go to offering and mission support, we have the opportunity to joyfully entrust our resources to God who supplies the ultimate blessing. (laughs) Friends, Abram in faith tithes his resources in response to God's promise and God's blessing. And it's, it's an example worth considering, okay? Why does God want us to show up to church? Because he wants us to be revisioned when we're in Egypt. God, why does God want us to tithe our resources? He doesn't need our money. He, doesn't need, he can do anything he wants. He wants us to hold what he provides loosely so that we can be participants in a better blessing. In a better blessing. Now, it doesn't end there. Notice what happens next. Verse 21. It says, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Friends, here this, this presumptuous king of Sodom, who keep in mind has just been bailed out by Abram, uh, Sodom got his tail whipped, didn't he? The king of Sodom. His people ended up in in Dan of all places, way to the north. He couldn't do a thing about it. Abram came to his rescue. And yet this presumptuous king has the audacity to say, well, let me set the terms for how we're going to do things here. Uh, uh, You can have all the stuff, but we get that. But the people, they're mine, right, Abram? Why don't you sign off on that? Church, the king of Sodom is not the victor. Abram is. And yet, Abram looks right at him and he says, you know what? Your way of thinking, it's all messed up. See, all this stuff is God's. It's not yours and it's not mine either. And I've tried to take matters into my own hands before. I've tried to take from evil kings, but there's no way I'm going to do that. I'm going to trust God and not you. I'm not giving you any opportunity to claim anything for yourself. It's all about God. And so he says this in verse 24. He says, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eskel and Mamre take their share. Abram says, I will take nothing except that which replenishes what I've lost. Friends, I don't know about you, but I might have looked at the king of Sodom and I might have said, well, bless your heart. (laughs) Maybe I'd have said something else. I don't know. But you know what? I came to bail you out and here you are setting terms with me. Who, who Who do you think you are? And I might have said, yeah, I'll take what's mine. I'm going home and I'm going to sit in it. I'll receive my reward. But Abram wouldn't do that. He trusted God's promise. And God said, I will provide you land and seed and blessing. God said, I will be the source if you trust me. And Abram does here. He takes nothing from the king. And so with the blessing of Melchizedek on one side and this this evil offer of the king of Sodom on the other, Abram once again demonstrates his recommitment to the Lord. He takes nothing and he receives only the blessing that comes from God. Friend, I wonder, do you need a reboot this morning? Abram provides the example. It doesn't matter how messy you've been. It doesn't matter your past. It matters where your eyes are looking, where you direct your faith. 
What are you holding on to that God wants you to release? Is it your job? Is it your wealth? Is it your physical attributes? Is it your emotional happiness? Is it, is it your idea of blessing that you think you deserve and are unwilling to release to God for his better blessing? And friends, it's, it's not that you can't work hard to be successful. It's not that you can't acquire wealth. It's not that you should neglect your physical body or your emotional happiness. All those things are important. It's, it's, it's that you must let, not let those things come between you and God's truest blessing, his best blessing, which is his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Sodomite kings are all around us. And they're always offering us something better. But there's only one true king. What blessing do you want? Abram put his faith in God. He tied his resources. Are we willing to do that? To admit that our treasure is a gift from God and that because God owns it all, we can trust him even with 10%? Will we trust God and take nothing except that which he supplies? Will we be like the Abram of Genesis 12 who ran from God's provision, who took matters into his own hands? Or will we be like the Abram of chapter 13 who refused to take and instead trusted God? We'll throw in chapter 14 there as well. Friends, some of us have been taken for a really long time. Some of us have been trying to manage our lives for a really long time. In fact, that's the only way we know how to do it. But there's still time. See, God will reboot you like Abram if you turn to him in faith. And it's not, that you, it's not that you have to figure out the intricacies of what's going on inside the watch. You don't have to know the electronics. You don't have to be a computer programmer. You just need to say to God, I have no idea. Would you fix this? And he'll hit the power button. He'll reboot the watch. And he'll hand it back to you and he'll say, would you trust me this time? Would you go with me? Oh, I want to provide for you, but you've got to trust me. Friends, how the world would be different if that was our practice. Tithe resources. And I don't just mean money. I mean trust him with everything. <laughs> and trust him and take nothing and let him have his way. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I'm so humbled by your word. I, it, it messes me up. And I, even as I say that, I don't mean that. Like, look at me, I'm humble. I mean, like, oh, man, woe is me. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. But God, you are the gracious provider. I know that I'm capable of going down to Egypt. In fact, I've been there. I know what happens in Egypt. It's not good. But I know that you are the God who calls us up out of those dark places and back to your promise if we would simply look to you in faith. Some of my dear brothers and sisters are struggling right now. Some have lost a loved one. We think about the Kakalka family and we think about the grief that they're experiencing. We think about others that just this week in our church family who've unexpectedly lost loved ones who are struggling in different ways. 
And God, Egypt sort of creeps up on us in all ways, shapes, and forms. But here we are saying, God, we can't do it. We don't know how to do it. We don't understand it. But we do know that you do. And so we will trust you with everything we have. And we'll take nothing for ourselves because what we could take pales in comparison to what you give. And ultimately, Lord, the promise for us is not prosperity in this life. We're not promised riches in this life. We're promised riches and glory. And we're promised a savior who walks with us on the journey. And in that, (laughs) there is great riches. There is great glory, even now. So pull us up out of Egypt, reboot us, and have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. you have not descended so far that God is incapable of bringing you back up. Let him reboot you. Let him pour out his grace over you. Let him love you. Let him hold you in his arms. And as you do, share the love you receive. Share the blessing that you know with a world that, it, that needs to be blessed as well. Let's represent